O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in Romans chapter 3. Incidentally, for your planning purposes, next week will be our last class prior to Holy Week and Easter. So we will have class next week, but then we will be taking a four-week break. So, four weeks. That's right. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Um, But nevertheless, as I said last night at the Wednesday service, this is the busiest time of the year for the clergy and for the staff, and just as Jesus is coming out of the tomb, we always feel as though we're going into it. So um, we're going to try to pace ourselves as best we can. Um, But we will be back. Of course, it's really only two weeks after we're down for Holy Week, we're down for Easter Week, and then there's two weeks because of Tea Room, which of course is that other great high feast day in the life of the church, so we don't want to miss that. So that's the real reason why we're, we're down. But we will come back, God willing, in four weeks. So we are in Romans today, chapter 3, of course, and we are beginning a new section, an encouraging section, which is wonderful because everything up to this point has not been, we're going to say, it has been a long slog through the first two and a half chapters. But here we are at Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. Let's just go ahead and read through verse 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As I said a moment ago, This has been a long slog. Uh, Paul is one of those who believes that in order to appreciate the good news, you have to first receive the bad news. And that is exactly what he has been giving us nonstop for two and a half chapters. But then when you get to verse 21, everything begins to change. It's like the light begins to dawn. And you get an indicator of that in the first two words of verse 21, where Paul says, but now. Those words indicate that we are shifting our focus, but now. Up to this point, one thing, but now, that is to say from here on out, something different. Now, in order to appreciate everything that Paul is going to say in the subsequent verses, we need to recognize, again, what he has said up to this point. So just a brief review of Romans chapter 1 and 2, the bad news before we get to what is indeed good news here. And I say good news because we're going to see it depends upon your perspective. 
but Paul certainly regards it as good news. So, Romans chapters 1 and 2. Paul says the problem is that the wrath of God, that is to say the judgment of God, is being poured out upon all of mankind, all of humanity. And the reason for this is not because men and women are ignorant of the truth, it's because they have suppressed the truth. And not only suppressed the truth, they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And as a consequence of doing that, we're going to see that this is just a downward spiral. And as a result of doing that, they have turned to worshiping not the Creator, who is forever blessed, but created things. Idols can be good things, but anything that we place is a higher priority than God. So they suppress the truth about God. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They're worshiping and serving created things. And as a consequence, God gives them up. I said when we studied that section, the worst words you can ever hear from God are, have it your way. Now that's what Burger King says, have it your way. But those are the worst words we could ever hear from God, have it your way. God hands them over. And again, they embark on this downward spiral. Things go from bad to worse to such a degree that when you get to the bottom of it, and this is how you know you've hit bottom, is when it's an upside-down world to such a degree that you're calling good evil and you're calling evil good, you're inventing new ways of doing evil, and you applaud those who practice them. And Paul says that is where the race is. The race is in ruin. And he said, no one has a clean plate. That's what Romans chapter 2 is all about. Romans chapter 1 is how we got to this terrible place, and Paul says, no one has an excuse. No one, doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a Jew, you're a Gentile, it makes no difference, the religious, the non-religious, no one is better off than anybody else. All stand condemned. What's more, he says, you are condemned by whatever standard of morality you choose to employ. You stand condemned by that standard of morality. And then at the beginning of Romans chapter 3, Paul begins to deal with some of the questions that might arise in the light of what he's just said in the first two chapters. Somebody might say, well, then what's the point of being a Jew? I thought the Jews were God's chosen people. Don't they have any advantage whatsoever? Do they stand condemned along with all of the pagans? And of course, Paul responds that they do have advantages. But the problem is that they cannot even employ their own advantages because their will, like the will of every other human being, is bound. He says, when all is said and done, no one seeks for God. No one does good. All are condemned before the sight of the Lord. It is a pitiful picture. Again, it is a picture of the race in ruin. That's what Paul has said right there in the first two and a half chapters of this epistle. But now. Hallelujah for but now. There's going to be a change, Paul says. And the good news, he says, is that it is change for the better. This is really where Paul begins to introduce us to the heart of this epistle. If you know anything about the epistle to the Romans, you know that this is Paul's great letter about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And Paul is introducing us here. 
Over the course of the next several chapters, what he's going to do is he's going to flesh out four ideas. We're going to take a look at them in, in minute detail, but just to sort of sketch them out for you at the beginning here as an introduction, Paul is going to talk about four things that now change. That's what we once were under judgment, but now, he says, there's going to be a change. The first change is a change from wrath to righteousness. Romans chapter 1 talks about being under the wrath of God. But Paul is going to go on in the next few chapters to talk about how we are transferred from the realm of wrath, God's judgment, to being in a right relationship with Him. He's going to talk about the change that takes place from condemnation to justification. We are not lined up with God. We're in an adversarial relationship with God. It's interesting the way that Paul describes human beings. He describes them as God-haters. Now, there's probably not a person in this room that would define themselves in those terms as God-haters. I'm actually going to talk about this on Easter. Aren't you looking forward to it? (laughs) But Paul says, regardless of how we see ourselves, our actions suggest otherwise. But we're going to be transferred, but now we will be transferred from this realm of condemnation to one of justification. We're going to be delivered, he says, from the realm of bondage to one of freedom and from one of exclusion to one of participation. Now you just think about that contrast. That is powerful stuff. Who wants to be under wrath? We're all under wrath, but we're going to be delivered from that wrath to righteousness, into a right relationship with God. We were under condemnation, according to the law. We are now going to be in a right standing before the bar of God's ultimate justice. We were enslaved, we were in bondage, we're going to be emancipated. And finally, we were excluded. Who likes to be excluded? Now, if you're an introvert, there are times when you don't want to go out, you don't want to be in public, you don't want to go to a party, but you still want to get the invitation. Nobody likes to be excluded. And we're not going to be excluded. We are going to be invited in. We are going to participate. That's what Paul is going to talk about. This is the way it has been up to this point, but now. Those are two glorious words, but now. Everything is going to change. Now, the question is, how does this change take place? How is it that we are transferred from the realm of wrath to righteousness, from bondage to freedom? Well, Paul goes on in the verses that we just read to explain that. Again, he's going to flesh it out, but he is setting the tone right here at the beginning. First of all, he says, God provides a righteousness of his own. Because we have no inherent righteousness. There's nothing that we can offer. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The very things I want to do, I do not do. The very things I hate, those are the things I find myself doing. Why? Because I'm in bondage. My will is in bondage. Even if my choices are free, whatever the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. And because the heart is corrupted by sin, all of the choices I make are therefore sinful. They're freely made but they bring me under condemnation. So God provides a righteousness of His own because we have none. Second of all, Paul says this righteousness comes by grace. 
And not just by grace, but by grace alone. God's undeserved, unearned favor. It is the work of Christ's atoning death upon the cross, Paul goes on to say, that makes this grace possible. Grace may be free to you and to me, but it's costly to God. There is a price that is paid for grace, for the grace that you and I receive, but it is not paid by us, it is paid by Christ. And this new righteousness, this new relationship that comes to us by grace through the sacrifice of Christ is received by faith. Faith is the conduit by which we receive the grace and the mercy of God. Now Paul says this is good news. And this is exactly why we call the Christian message gospel. Evangelion, it means glad tidings, good news. And Paul is saying to us, this is why the Christian message is good news. But you can't appreciate that good news until you first realize how bad the situation was. That's why for two and a half chapters, he has just hammered on the wretched condition of the human race. But now he says, everything changes. It's good news. Well, here's the question. Is it good news to you? Is what Paul's saying here about God providing a righteousness for us because we have no righteousness of our own, a righteousness that comes by grace, which comes through the sacrifice of Christ, which is received by faith, is that good news for you? Paul thinks it's good news. He thinks it's exceedingly good news. It transformed his life. But the question is this, is it good news for you? Do you see it? Do you recognize it as good news? You know, it all depends, doesn't it? It really depends upon a number of things. It depends upon how you view yourself, first and foremost. You know, sometimes we think things that are good news, other people do not see them as good news. Years ago, I had a lady in my parish in Beaufort. She was a wonderful lady. Her name was Ann Shaw. Ann was a wonderful lady, um, but uh, her children were troubled at the time. She had come from a wealthy family. Her father owned a number of newspapers and businesses in Alabama and a number of the other southern states. And uh, he died um, and left her the entire estate. She was an only child, and they left her the entire estate. And she inherited millions and millions and millions of dollars. And um, they lived a very nice lifestyle, lived in a very affluent part of Beaufort, had a number of homes and so forth. But her daughter uh, fell in with the wrong crowd, and her daughter was actually murdered. One of her daughters was actually murdered. And I remember going to the house and visiting with Anne. And what what does a pastor say in that kind of a situation? It's just tragic. And I'm sitting in this magnificent home, and we're just praying, and I'm talking with her, trying to offer some word of encouragement, some word of comfort. And she looked up at me, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, do you want to know something? She said, the worst thing that can ever happen to a young couple, and she was referring to her husband and her, she said, the worst thing that can ever happen to a young couple is for them to inherit an enormous amount of money. 
Now, you ask most people, is that the worst thing that could ever happen to a young couple? Inherit an enormous amount of money? They would disagree with that, wouldn't they? But it depends upon your perspective. To her, the worst thing that could possibly happen now, as she looked back with the advantage of hindsight, was they had inherited an enormous amount of money. And she saw that in many ways as the cause of all of her misery. Well, Paul speaks of good news here, a great inheritance, if you will, but whether or not you'll see it as a great, rich inheritance depends upon your perspective. So, for example, if you see yourself as Paul saw himself, this is very good news. How did Paul see himself? Paul saw himself as a miserable wretch. Now, we don't think of the Apostle Paul that way. We think of Paul as a great giant of the faith and so forth. But Paul knew his own life. Most of us forget Paul's former life in Judaism. We, we read Paul's letters and we think about this man who was a valiant soldier for the cross and so forth. We forget what his life was like prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus. Incidentally, most of the people that Paul had to contend with, they did not forget. They always remembered. You know, there's always somebody that remembers. It doesn't matter what you go on to accomplish. They always remember you well. That was even the case with Jesus. Jesus went into his hometown of Nazareth, and we're told he could do no great deed there because of their lack of faith. Oh, we remember you. Don't come in here and tell us you're the Messiah, you're the Savior. You are just the child of Mary and Joseph the carpenter. Well, Paul remembered what it was like. Keep your finger there in Romans for just a minute and skip to 1 Timothy for just a second. Timothy, of course, was Paul's young protege. He was a young man. Paul is going to pass on the gospel to young Timothy. But there's this wonderful passage in 1 Timothy. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul is writing to this young man, and he says this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, you know those words. Why? Because we say them every Sunday immediately following the confession of sin. We call these the comfortable words. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But we leave off the last part. We leave it off because it's autobiographical. What does Paul say? This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Translate... I am the worst. That's why what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 3, this message of God's grace received by faith, a grace that cost God everything, the price of his own son's life was so rich and wonderful to the Apostle Paul. That's why it was good news, because he saw himself as the foremost of sinners. Not just a sinner, mind you, but as the worst sinner, the worst sinner offender. Let me ask you a question. Is that how you see yourself? See, if you see yourself that way, then what Paul is saying here, oh, that's good news. 
But if you don't see yourself that way, then it may or may not be good news to you. If you think you're a decent man or a decent woman, then this is not going to be good news to you. Why? Well, let me try to provide an illustration. If you graduate from law school, one of the things that you have to do before you can actually begin to practice as an attorney is you have to pass the bar examination. Now, we've got a number of attorneys out there. They're all practicing attorneys, so I assume they pass the bar. The bar examination is, in many states, a, a multi-day event, and it is brutal. Everybody tells me it's brutal. I never took the bar exam, but they say it is absolutely brutal. And every year there is a certain percentage that just doesn't pass the bar. Now, it doesn't mean you can't take it again, but you don't pass the bar. And some years the percentage is higher than other years, but there's always a certain percentage that does not pass the bar. Now, just imagine you are there, probably that guy with your, that dejected look on his face, and you go and you take the bar exam, and the results come back, normally months later, the results come back, you did not pass the bar. Now, you know who it is that's been reading the exams and grading them and so forth, and so you make an appointment and you go, and here's what you say to them. I understand I did not pass the bar. That's right, you did not. But I want you to know I did my best. I want you to know I gave it my best shot. Do you think that the reader of the exam is going to say, well, that changes everything? All right, we'll go ahead and pass you on. He's not going to say that. He's going to say, well, I, I understand that. You, you gave it your best shot, and that's wonderful, but there is a standard, and you have not reached the standard. And so you go home, and you're discouraged, depressed, a little mad. And let's say you find out, by some means, one way or another, that nobody else that day in that room passed the exam either. Moreover, you discover that while nobody passed, you did better than everybody else. All right? And so you go back to the reader of the exam and you say, well, I understand, it's come to my attention. Nobody else passed the bar exam that day. But I did better than everybody else. As if to imply that that should change things. And what do you think the reader of the exam is going to say? Now, those of you who have been teachers, you've, you've been in this kind of a situation. They're going to say, I'm sorry, it may be true, nobody else passed the exam, but that doesn't mean we're going to pass the exam simply because you did better than everybody else. Or simply because you gave it your best shot. There is a standard, and let's say the standard to pass is 85%, and you got 60. It doesn't matter if everybody else got 30 or 40. The reality is you have not measured up to the standard. Now, I use that as an illustration because I think that's the way many people look at it when it comes to getting into God's good graces. When they think about salvation, that's what they think of. They think to themselves, well, I gave it my best shot. And when I stand before the bar of God's judgment on that last great day and the books are open and I am judged and God says, why should I let you in to my kingdom? The answer we're going to give is, number one, I gave it my best shot. I gave it the old college try. 
and God is going to say, I understand that, you did not measure up to the standard. Or we're going to say, I wasn't perfect, but I understand I did a lot better than a lot of other people. And we're going to compare ourselves to other people, and we're going to say, on that basis, you ought to let me into the kingdom of God. And what is God going to say? The same thing the reader of the exam is going to say, I understand that you still did not measure up to the standard. Now that's the situation. So if you see yourself as a good person who gave it your best shot, and if you think that you are at least better than the vast majority of the human race, is this going to be good news for you when God says you can do nothing? That it's a free gift? You see, we often cling to this desire that there is something, just something good within me that I can contribute to the process whereby God ought to receive me. And if you are holding on to that idea, let me tell you, my friends, what Paul is going to say throughout the epistle to the Romans is not going to be good news to you. It may be interesting, it may be a fascinating academic exercise, but it's not going to be good news for you. It's only good news if you see yourself in the light of eternity, if you see yourself the way the Apostle Paul saw himself, that is, as the foremost of sinners. Now, that's not to say that you, compared to other people, aren't better than other people. The question is whether you measure up to the standard that God has set. That's the crucial issue. Well, that's what Paul is talking about. First of all, you've got to understand what's the standard. What's the passing grade? The guy who passes um, with an 85 and the guy that fails with a 60, the guy that fails with a 60 knows he's got to bring it up, doesn't he? Well, the question is, how good do we have to be in order to earn our way into the kingdom of God? We've already talked about this. Paul says God's standard is perfection. Jesus said, be as perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And even if we could do it from this point forward in our lives, we still have amassed an enormous debt of sin up to this point. So who among us can reach the standard? Not a single one of us. Not a blessed one of us. Which is why Paul says, going back now to Romans chapter 3, but now, but now, a righteousness of God. Some translations, translations say a righteousness from God. Do you see how he's making the shift? When, you, when you're brought to that low point where you realize there's nothing we can offer, and then you hear those words, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, that is the standard of perfection of God, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So I'll ask the question again. Is what Paul's saying here at the beginning of Romans chapter 3 good news to you? And if you're thinking to yourself, well, I've never thought of myself as the foremost of sinners, 
then my only advice to you would be, well, two things I would say. One, take God at his word, because he says you are. Number two, ask God to open the eyes of your heart and your mind to see yourself aright. Because one of the ways that you can know that you're walking with the Lord is, the closer you get to him, the more apparent your own faults, foibles, blemishes, and sins will become. The closer you get to the light, the more apparent your own defects will be. So is this really good news? It depends upon where you are. But Paul wants us to understand it really is good news. And what's more, it is really good news. It is liberating, my friends. It is freeing to see yourself as the foremost of sinners, to recognize that God owes you nothing, that what you deserve is the wrath of God. That, that is freeing. You know, most of us, if the truth be known, put up facades. We, we make a presentation to those around us, to the culture, to our community, to our friends, to our neighbors. We want to be seen in a particular way. And the reason we do that is because we are afraid if we are fully known, we will never be fully loved. How many of you have secrets? I want to see every hand in this room go up. Every single person has secrets. Things you do not want anyone else to know about. Things that your spouse, those closest to you, do not even know about. Whether it's a dream that you had, or whether it's a fantasy that you harbor. Whatever it is, there are certain things that you know you dare not share those. Because you are afraid that if you do, they will love you less. The glory of the gospel is that God knows you fully. He knows everything about you. You're not hiding anything from Him and yet he loves you completely. That's what's so freeing about the Christian gospel. It is really good news. Let me suggest to you just a couple of reasons why salvation as a gift of God, apart from human doing, is really good news. First of all, it's really good news because it means you can be saved now. You can enjoy the gift of God's acceptance now. Now, if this was the result of human works, human efforts, you would never know until that last great day when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ are raised and we're standing there before the bar of God's judgment and all the books are open and no secrets are hid and you'll never know until that moment whether you made it or not. It's like opening up that letter from the bar exam. You're, you're there trembling, wondering, did I pass, did I not pass? You would never know in this life. Your whole life would be one of fear and anxiety. How many of you enjoy being anxious? But you see, if it is a gift of God, not of works, freely offered received by faith, then that means you can experience salvation right now. You can experience right now. You don't have to wait and wonder 
you can experience right now the love and forgiveness of God. This is why Paul, five chapters later in Romans chapter 8, can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not in the future, he means now. That's why Paul can say nothing can separate us, neither height nor depth, angels nor principalities, things present nor things to come. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus your Lord now. If you're still doing it your own way, if you want to do it, as John Houseman used to say, the old-fashioned way, and you want to earn your way in, you'll never know. You can be saved now. And you don't have to take Paul's word for it. Turn to John chapter 5. And you could take Jesus' own word for it. John chapter 5. Jesus said, truly, truly. Incidentally, whenever you see those words repeated like that, the old King James said, verily, verily. But that means sit up, pay attention. This is important. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is a marvelous passage of Scripture. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will have, but has eternal life. It's not he will pass. He does not come into judgment because he has already passed from death to life. So this really is good news because it means if you see yourself in this way and you rely completely on Jesus Christ and on him who sent him, then you can be saved right now. You can have the absolute assurance, no wondering, no questioning, no doubts. You could know that if you were killed in a car accident today, you would be beyond the shadow of a doubt in the presence of the Lord. The promise for you is as secure as it was for that thief on the cross when Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the first reason. Here's the second thing. You know that salvation is certain. It's not as though you pass from death to life and you may at some future point mess it up and pass from life back to death again. You can know with absolute certainty that your salvation is secure. Keep your finger in Romans or John or wherever you are and turn to Philippians for just a moment. We're going to be skipping around, but it's very important that we understand that this is not just Paul's testimony. This is the testimony of all Scripture. And it's not just what he says here in Romans, it's what he says elsewhere. Paul's writing to the Philippians the church in Philippi. It's one of my favorite places to visit, incidentally, when you go over to that part of the world. 
Paul had a wonderful relationship with the Philippian church. And here's what he's writing at the beginning. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's point being that if God is the one who starts the process of salvation, God always finishes what he starts. And whatever process of sanctification he has begun in your life, justification is that process by which we come into a right relationship with God, but sanctification is the process by which we are made into the thing we are declared to be. We are declared righteous. Sanctification is the process, and it's a lifelong process, by which God continually hones us, shapes us, transforms us into the thing that we have been declared to be, righteous people. And because God started the process with justification, He will bring it through in sanctification until the last day of salvation when we will experience glorification. So you can experience salvation now. Your salvation will be certain. And here's the other thing. God alone will get the glory. You don't get the credit, but He gets the glory. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, For you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins in which you used to walk, but God made you alive even when you were dead. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and not by works, so that no man may boast. That's why this is good news. It's good news if you look back over the course of your life and you realize I've really messed it up. And there's nothing that I can do to earn God's favor, but He has provided a way for me. A way whereby I can be saved, I can experience that salvation now. That salvation is certain. God will finish what He starts, and God alone will get the glory. I won't get the credit, but He will get the glory. Paul says that's what makes this really good news. But I still come back to the idea it all depends upon your perspective. If you still see yourself as pretty good, at least better than others, if you have a hard time seeing yourself as Paul saw himself, it'll never come across to you as good news. It just won't. Because we're not talking about the standards of men and women. We're talking about the standard of God, which is the standard of perfection. So go back to Romans chapter 3 now. Now, as I said, this is grace. It's all of grace. That's what Paul has been talking about. And we've discussed what grace means. Grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor. That's why he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified by His grace as a gift. There's a little bit of redundancy there in what Paul says because grace and gift, it's almost synonymous. Grace is undeserved, unearned favor. Somebody gives you a gift, you haven't earned it. It's a gift. It's what makes it a gift. It's free. 
What Paul is saying is there is a righteousness from God manifested apart from the law. What he means is the law, meaning the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament law, all of those things that we need to do. But not just the law, but law in general. There is a righteousness that comes apart from human effort. A righteousness that comes from God, which comes as grace. Now, we've talked a lot about grace, so I'm not going to hammer on that theme right now. But we said grace is free, free to us, but not free to God. It's a free gift to us, but if somebody gives you a gift, somebody buys you a, a nice wedding gift, and it's, it's Waterford Crystal, that gift costs you nothing. But it costs them something. This free offer of salvation comes to you and to me as a gift. It doesn't cost us anything, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't cost God. Which is why in that same breath that Paul is talking about grace and gift, he goes on to say the word redemption. Redemption. For all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's why the only way to be saved is by God's righteousness, which comes to us as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, that's one of the most important words in the Christian's vocabulary, that word redemption. B.B. Warfield, who was for many years a great professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, said, there is no greater title for Jesus Christ, or at least none that is more precious to the Christian than that title of Redeemer. Now we can talk about a lot of other titles for Jesus, but the one that should be the most precious, he said, to the Christian should be that word Redeemer. He is the one who has redeemed us. The Greek word there is apolytrosis. Apolytrosis. And it carries with it the idea of buying something back. That's what we do when you redeem something. If you have a coupon, you redeem it at the grocery store, don't you? But the way that Paul uses the language here and the way that it is always used in the New Testament, it means not just to buy something back, it means to buy something back out of slavery or out of a pawn shop. When you pawn something, what do you do? It goes into hawk, doesn't it? You get money for it, but if you want to get it out of hawk, you have to pay for it. You have to redeem it. This free gift of salvation, which is not earned, which is offered to God, which really is good news, it comes to us at no price, but it costs God a price. He has to redeem us. Every time that word redemption appears in the New Testament, whichever Greek word is used for it, Paul uses a very specific word here, but it is always used to describe buying something back out of the marketplace, out of the pawn shop, or most importantly, out of slavery. By the time that Paul was writing these words, that's how the word was used. It was used to describe someone coming and purchasing the freedom of another human being. Now, you understand that in the first century world, slavery was rampant. 
In fact, it's been said that at least one half of the world's population in the first century was enslaved to the other half of the population. And it wasn't just on racial lines. It could be on any number of lines. And that's because there were three ways for a person to fall into slavery in the ancient world. The first way that you became a slave was by birth. In other words, if your mother and father were slaves and you were born into it, you were automatically a slave, just the way it was. Second way that you could become a slave was by debt. They didn't have debtor's prisons in those days, and they didn't have chapter 13 bankruptcy laws or anything like that. If you owed somebody money and you could not pay off the debt, you became the slave of the person to whom you were indebted. And the third way that a person became a slave in the ancient world was by defeat, by conquest. In other words, if you, another nation came in and conquered you, the conquered people became the slaves. You remember that Israel was carried off into slavery. They were slaves any number of points in their history. They were slaves in Egypt, making bricks without straw. They were slaves to the Babylonians when they were carried off into exile. That's the way it was in the ancient world. So when Paul uses this language of redemption, this language of buying someone out of the marketplace, out of slavery, out of the pawn shop, this is what he's talking about. He's saying that you and I have received this free gift of salvation, but it required God to purchase us, to buy us out of bondage, because that's what we were in. That's what we were talking about. We talked about the bondage of the will. We're enslaved. And the way that a person became a slave physically in the ancient world is analogous to the way that you and I become slaves to sin. We're born into it. We're all OS positive. We're born into slavery. That's what David said in Psalm 51. He said, before I was born in my mother's womb, I was a sinner. So we're born into slavery to sin. We owe a debt. How many Presbyterians do I have out there? Anybody that's a Presbyterian or raised a Presbyterian? Okay, when you say the Lord's Prayer, Presbyterians, those of you who are raised Presbyterians, you don't say, forgive us our trespasses. You say what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's a legitimate translation. We are in debt to God. So we become slaves by birth, by debt, and by conquest. Scripture speaks of sin reigning over us. That's what we are. And yet God comes... And for a price, purchases us. He, he frees us. He liberates us. And he uses that freedom as a gift to us. Now let me show you the price that he paid. Turn to 1 Peter for just a moment. These are some passages that if you do highlight in your Bible... And I encourage you to do it. One of the prayers we often pray at the beginning of this class is help us to so read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest thy word, that by patience and comfort it may bring forth in us the fruit of good living. Well, read, mark, learn. Don't add. Don't subtract, but by all means, read, mark, 
learn it and inwardly digest it. But here's what Peter says in 1 Peter, beginning chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You were born into this. He says, Know that you were ransomed. What does it mean to ransom something? It means to pay a price, doesn't it? Somebody's kidnapped and they want to ransom. You have to pay a price to liberate them. It's the same idea here. Redemption, ransom. Know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So salvation is really good news for those who recognize that they're sinners it's a free gift offered. There's nothing we can do to earn it, but it makes your salvation secure. It makes it a reality in the here and now, but while it costs you nothing, it costs God everything. You were redeemed, you were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. That's what it cost to give you that kind of security. It costs Christ his own life. Now, I've shared this story with you before, but I think in all the Bible, this is, apart from the message of the cross, the most beautiful picture of redemption and ransom that I know. It's in one of those books of the Bible that most people have never read. The book of Hosea. So let me tell you a little bit about Hosea what it is, and why I think it's a beautiful picture of redemption. Hosea was a prophet, and God said, Hosea, I've got a job for you to do. He says, I want you to live your life in such a way that you will be an example to the people of Israel. You, your, your life is going to be a picture of my relationship with my people. So here's what I want you to do. I want you, Hosea, to go and marry a certain woman. She is beautiful. Because when I look at Israel, she is beautiful to me. And Hosea is like, okay, no problem. Got that down. Who is this woman? The only thing unattractive about her was her name. Her name was Gomer. That was the only unattractive thing about her. I can't help but think of Gomer Pyle every time I think of that name. But she was a beautiful woman. And the Lord said, you're going to take her as your wife because your life is going to be a picture of my life and my relationship with my people. She's beautiful to you because Israel's beautiful to me. But that's the good news. Here's the bad news. Just as Israel has been unfaithful to me, so Gomer is going to be unfaithful to you. And it's going to be continuous. It's going to be habitual infidelity. And it's going to break your heart. And that's what happens. Hosea, if you read through the book, Hosea goes and he takes Gomer home as his wife. And for a while, at least, 
worked out pretty well. I mean, they got along. Perhaps Hosea even forgot about what God had said to him about her being unfaithful. But eventually, what happened is she fell in with another man. A man she thought could take better care of her than Hosea could. You know, the salary of a prophet is not all that great. <laughs> and so she goes off with this other man and, um, you know, leaves Hosea at home with the children and everything else, just abandons him. But eventually what happens is that man tires of her and she decides that he's not taking care of her well enough, so she decides to go back to Hosea. Now what does Hosea do? Same thing God did with Israel when Israel was unfaithful but then repented and came back. Hosea took her in. But a little while later, Gomer came upon another man. Remember, she's attractive. And this man was even better than the first man, she thought. And so she goes off and lives with him. But as is the case oftentimes with the wealthy, eventually he tired of her. There were other things to attract him. And she got left behind again and she came back to Hosea. But each time she was unfaithful, the situation sort of got worse and worse and worse. And eventually she fell in with a man who didn't take care of her very well at all. And she went into debt. Now in the ancient world, when you went into debt, what happened to you? No debtor prisons, no chapter 13 bankruptcy. What happened to you? You became a slave. And that's what happened to Gomer. She became a slave. In the ancient world, when slaves were sold, they were sold on the auction block, and they were sold naked. So ladies, I just want you to imagine how humiliating that would be to you. And what they do is they come along, and you know, just the same way that a man wants to buy livestock. They come along, turn around, let me take a look at you, let me see what you look like, smile, let me see your teeth. It's humiliating. It's horrible. If you're feeling uncomfortable, you should. It's a terrible situation. She's brought up to the auction block. She's lost a lot of her youthfulness, but she's still an attractive woman. And they take off her clothes, and she's standing there in front of a gawking crowd, like I'm standing before you, and they start the bidding. And she's attractive, and the bidding's going up. And up, it's getting really high. The question is, who's going to win? And then all of a sudden, from the back of the room, there comes a bid. A man had given everything that he had to purchase this woman. And the price was so high that the bidding just stopped. And the gavel fell. And Gomer was sold. And everybody turned around to see who it was that had paid the price. And coming from the back of the crowd was Hosea. He was under no obligation to buy her. In the words of Professor Higgins, he could have shut the door and let the hellcat freeze. <laughs> but he didn't. He gave everything that he had. And he came. And he took off his cloak. And he covered her nakedness. And he put his arm around her, and he led her out through that gawking crowd. And he said, I have purchased you. You belong to me, and I now belong to you. 
And from here on out, we shall be faithful to each other. I want you to understand that is what Jesus Christ did for you. You were in bondage because of your infidelity, your past unfaithfulness. You and I think that there were things that could take better care of us, other gods that could take better care of us than God could. And we constantly went astray. And we were put on the auction block. We were in bondage to sin and death. And God bid the highest price imaginable by giving the life of His very own Son. It is not with silver and gold and perishable things that you have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. And He covers our nakedness with His righteousness, a righteousness that comes from God apart from the law. And He leads us out into freedom. And He turns to us and He says, Now you belong to Me. I will be faithful to you, and you shall be faithful to Me. And that is what the Gospel is all about. But you're only going to see that. You're only going to appreciate that. You're only going to rejoice in that. If you see yourself as Gomer, you see yourself the way Paul saw himself as the chief of sinners. God grant that we might see ourselves in that light and see this but now gospel as the good news it is. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this marvelous epistle to the Romans. It really is good news. Help us to see ourselves aright. Help us to see all our faults and our blemishes, not that we might be driven to despair, but that we might be driven to the cross, to see the great price that was paid for us, a price of love, to realize our worth is not found in anything that we do or in how anyone else regards us. Our worth is found in the fact that you loved us so much that you paid the highest price imaginable to buy us back, to set us free, to let us go. Grant us, Lord, to see ourselves in this way, for Jesus' sake. Amen.